Hello, and welcome to this first anniversary FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Revolution is a romantic word and a bloody practice. This autumn, the word will be discussed a lot, although in my world, and probably yours, it won't be practiced at all. Observance of the centenary of the Russian Revolution will be the main reason. The Bolshevik seizure of power has had an analogous effect on politics as the atomic bombs use at the end of World War II has had on warfare. The bomb unleashed a destructive force so great that the clash of the big nations has become unthinkable because so much destruction is mutually assured. Same thing with the Bolshevik Revolution. The word will also come into use as we move towards the 50th anniversary remembrances of 1968, the year of student revolution. Actually, it's already happening. The University of California, Berkeley, where student revolution was effectively born in the U.S., is once again in the news. Right-wing agitators have started turning up at Berkeley, provoking protests. Steve Bannon is threatening to turn up for something called Free Speech Week, which may well spark a riot. This gives pundits the opportunity to note the irony that Berkeley, home of the free speech movement, has become anti-free speech. I have an abiding fondness for Berkeley. Always preferred it to San Francisco on the other side of the bay. Less smug, better weather. I lived in Berkeley briefly in 1969. I'm skeptical about a lot of claims made about revolution in the 60s, politically. But there was a genuine social revolution and Berkeley was its main West Coast node, and for a few months in that autumn of 1969, I was just an ion flowing in its electrifying current. The revolution was already well underway by the time I arrived. The Berkeley free speech movement of 1964-65 is generally regarded as its starting point. Briefly, some Berkeley students had been involved in the Mississippi Freedom Summer when civil rights workers James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman had been murdered. The young civil rights activists were helping African Americans in Mississippi register to vote. After such violence, maintaining the idea that university campuses were isolated from the political changes roiling America seemed untenable. Berkeley, however, had rules about politics on campus. There was to be no advocacy for political causes on campus grounds. Seems impossible to believe, but true. The university saw itself as a neutral space. It existed for education only. Plus, it was paid for by California taxpayers of all political persuasions. Tuition at Berkeley was zero then. Yeah, it was free to California residents who met the very high admission standards. Students paid an annual registration fee of around 300 bucks, and that was it. Anyway, Berkeley was meant to be a neutral, apolitical space, not advocate political points of view, as much to avoid offending those who paid for it as anything else. And there was the legacy of the Red Scares of the 40s and 50s and so on. The free speech movement simply insisted that in an America where students could be murdered in Mississippi while helping people register to vote, neutrality was no longer a viable position on campus. Activists set up political stalls in Sproul Plaza, the main entryway to the campus, in defiance of the rules. The police got involved, mass arrests were made, and one thing and another, berserkly was created and a student revolution called into being. Five years later, in the autumn of 1969, I moved to Berkeley to work. 
I was a student at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and the curriculum was specifically designed to challenge ivory tower learning with real-world experience. Not a bad idea. We spent six months of the year at school and six months of the year at a job off campus. I was studying philosophy and had an interest in neuroscience, the physiology of consciousness, and had got a job at a pharmaceutical laboratory in Berkeley where I thought I might learn more about the brain. Anyway, I drove there from Yellow Springs with my best friend, Dan, whose cousins, a brother and two sisters, were student activists on campus and was immediately immersed in berserkly life. The cousins were part of a left-wing political collective and lived in a communal house on the south side of campus, a few blocks from Telegraph Avenue, and they had said I could crash there for a few days while I looked for a more permanent place to live. The night we arrived, there was a party. The male cousin, not using names here, this man still practices law, was coming home from jail. A few months earlier, there had been riots over a derelict plot of land owned by the university a few blocks off campus. Students had begun using it for political activity. It was a continuation of the free speech movement with some of the same actors. People's Park became a place to rally against the Vietnam War, agitate against the capitalist system. The governor of California, Ronald Reagan, wasn't having it. He ordered his chief of staff, Edwin Meese, to clear the students out of the park. Meese, who would serve as chief counselor and then attorney general to Reagan when he reached the White House a decade later, ordered in the cops, who used shotguns to clear the space. One student was killed. Then Reagan declared a state of emergency and sent in the National Guard and put Berkeley on lockdown. Several hundred people were arrested, one of them Dan's cousin. The students were given shortish sentences at Santa Rita Jail. This was not a country club or day-release prison. It was the full-on American correctional system experience. Throwing mostly middle-class white kids, albeit well-versed in revolutionary politics and protest, in with gang members and hardened criminals was a fairly cruel thing to do. It was like feeding time on the savannah. My memory of that first evening in Berkeley is very basic. I remember vast pots of chili being prepared, beer and cheap jug wine taking up most of the space in the fridge, soul music on the stereo, and the party breaking up early because Dan's cousin broke down in tears. Bad things had happened to him in Santa Rita. Talk of revolution was easy in those days. Stoned or drunk or both, there was a lot of easy talk about when the revolution comes. We had no understanding of what the word meant in practice. That evening made it real for me. I have never read accounts of the Soviet gulag without thinking of Dan's cousin. The state has no more effective way of controlling political protest than throwing dissidents and poets into a prison with hardened criminals. There they learn the gap between their ideal of brotherhood and reality is filled with violence. Anyway, my other specific memory of that night is I rolled out my sleeping bag on the kitchen floor, and in the middle of the night, the house cat peed on me. Berkeley's student body is enormous, more than 20,000 undergraduates and thousands of grad students, and the center of campus life is Sproul Plaza. Despite the heavy hand of Reagan, Sproul became a kind of open city. 
Students, street people, ex-cons, a whole cross-section of the Bay Area counterculture hung out there. On days off, I drifted through the scene. It was like walking through a painting by Peter Bruegel the Elder, only with hippies and students instead of Flemish peasants. There were pressure tables for an astonishing number of causes and political parties. In one corner, each lunchtime, a middle-aged evangelist named Hubert stood on a soapbox, harangued us for our souls. His red hair was thinning, and his scalp turned an even deeper shade of crimson as he worked himself up. He was treated like a bear in a baiting pit in Elizabethan London, but he kept coming back for more. In Lower Sproul Plaza, there was a never-ending jam session of conga drummers, men of various shades of black, keeping up an ever-changing rhythm. The wind was in the anti-war movement sails that autumn. The great mobilization against the war in Vietnam was held. More people went on marches and attended rallies against the war than were deployed in Southeast Asia. I went to Sproul Plaza to hear Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse speak at a rally in support of Angela Davis, who had just been fired by the University of California, Los Angeles, for being a communist. Marcuse was a living link to the great German philosophical tradition. He had studied under Husserl and Heidegger. A Jew, he had lived through the rise of Hitler and fled the Nazi regime in time. Now, 70 years old, what must he have thought looking out at the tens of thousands of mostly young people packed into sprawl, aching for revolution? He warned us that the state would bring the full weight of repression down on us because it feared us. And he was right. There would be a lot of deaths in the ensuing year. Only you, he said, black, white and brown can break this insanity, the global omnivorousness of capitalism. He introduced Angela Davis, who had completed her doctoral dissertation under his supervision. She was the ideal person to be made an example of, Marcuse explained, because she is black, she is militant, she is communist, she is highly intelligent, and she is pretty. Well, he couldn't get away with that last comment today, but we laughed. Marcuse and Davis's speeches had a theme, the need for students to be in the real world and to make college campuses not a place of safe spaces, but to be engaged with the dangers beyond their boundaries. And all the while they spoke, conga drummers kept at their rhythms. Berkeley wasn't entirely given over to revolution. Sweeping through Sproul Plaza were plenty of people preparing for a life in the upper echelons of California society. They had always been there watch the film The Graduate again to get a sense of who they are. There were fraternities and sororities where the old undergraduate rituals were practiced, but even frat boys were having their political consciousness raised. The intensity of life that autumn, the golden light that in my memory is always shining on the east side of San Francisco Bay, and the fact that week by week it was clear that we were winning the argument, support for the war was shrinking rapidly, is what my fondness for Berkeley is based on. Then it was time to return to Ohio and endure the merciless cold of a Midwest winter. Two years later, my friend Dan and I went back to Berkeley for a brief visit. It was late August. Classes hadn't started, but even so it felt like the electricity was gone. There was an after-the-storm calm. Not in a bad way. We were visiting his cousins, their radical collective had broken up along gender lines. 
feminist theory had hit home, and the women felt the need to get themselves together outside the purview of the men. The social revolution had overtaken fraternities, and some Berkeley chapters had closed, so the collective's women had rented an empty fraternity house in the hills just above campus. It was an enormous mansion, honeycombed with secret passages and spy holes, where the fraternity brothers could watch each other, presumably engaging in sex. We had dinner, not chili this time, but pasta, and more jug wine and beer, and afterwards there was music and dancing. Let's put on some good old sexist stones, said one of Dan's cousins, and another, probably without thinking about it, queued up under my thumb. Well, it's got a good slow beat, and you can dance to it on a full belly of student cuisine and cheap wine. There was a little observation platform on top of the building, and someone mentioned that the sunset view was spectacular, and I said I'd like to watch it. A woman named Sheila offered to show me how to get up to the roof. It was a glorious evening, cloudless on both sides of the bay. You could see San Francisco clearly, the new Transamerica building, its now iconic elongated pyramid shape, not quite finished yet, had completely altered the skyline. The Marin County hills were clear. Purple shadows traced the gullies of the Berkeley-facing slopes. The Golden Gate Bridge linked the two. A soft breeze blew up from the bay, bringing the sound of the conga drummers from Sproul Plaza towards us. We were making small talk, Sheila and I, flirting. The breeze had blown a few strands of her lank, blonde hair into her face, and I reached over and brushed them back into place, and she didn't seem to mind. But before things got any further, we were summoned downstairs. She was on the house rota for some chore or other, and as a man, properly educated in the rituals of equality, I had to go do dishes. When I think of the calmness of that evening with Dan's cousins, and compare it to the frenetic, pain-filled atmosphere of my first night in their company just two years previously, when I think of the irony of a radical feminist collective living in an abandoned fraternity house and the sound of the conga drummers, the pulse of a revolutionary moment being borne up to me gently on the wind, it seems to me the high point of that revolution. After, the fragmenting would continue. Collective action, black brown and white students, campus to campus, city to city, would fade. Not quite a decade later, when Ronald Reagan was campaigning for president and went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, a few miles from where Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner had been murdered, to say he supported states' rights, always a code word for white supremacy, Berkeley didn't erupt. No campus did. The age of reaction set in. We're still living in it. Eventually, the women's collective disintegrated, and fraternity life returned to Berkeley. I was on campus a few years ago to give a seminar on my book, Emancipation. I walked around Sproul Plaza, hoping to find the ghost of myself, aged 19. There was hustle and bustle, but no rhythm. The conga players were long gone. Watching this generation of students racing through Sproul, I got the sense of people desperately hoping to find their place in the system not revolt against it. Revolution. People like the romantic feeling when they use the word. Making it is another thing altogether. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, 
lots more at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Take time to visit, tell your friends about it, and you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.